How's it going, everyone? And welcome to episode nine of Jimmy D and Mr. B. I am Jimmy D. And I am Mr. B. And we're here to talk about some history. So this week, we've decided on William uh, Wallace, uh, the Scottish rebel who pretty much started the war for Scottish independence. Um, I've chosen him mainly because of the movie Braveheart. I really enjoyed the film, even though it's a historical uh, uh, in, uh, inaccuracies. I really liked the character and I really liked how he fought for what he believed in. And I really found him a, a really strong figure to watch and to, and someone I wanted to learn more, more, more about. Yeah. I reckon this is one that you talked about pretty early on about a possible topic. Um, I embarrassingly, only watched Braveheart for the first time about a month ago. Um, you know, after it's one of those movies that everyone always told me I had to watch, but I never got around to it. And um, it was good. I would recommend it yeah. if you're one of the people like me that's never watched Braveheart. Check it out. But I mean, yeah, yeah, hundred percent worth the watch. But just be aware that it's not a historic, historically accurate in all aspects of the film. But it is truly enjoyable. Um, so yes, yeah, so I really wanted to learn more about him and what kind of he did and more kind of what happened in the key points of his life of Stirling Bridge and Falkirk and all that. So, as usual, we'll start with his early life. Um, William Wallace was born in 1270. Um that again, not completely accurate. There could be a few years of uh, of difference there. And um his family were landowners, minor nobles and to be honest, not a lot is known about his family, Clint. Yeah, I reckon this is probably the vaguest um, early life topic that we've seen. There's been a few that have been hard to actually find information on, but I reckon William Wallace is about the hardest. They Obviously, in the Scottish Highlands, they're not keeping great no, records at the time. Exactly not. So pretty much all we kind of know is that his dad was maybe Alan Wallace, but it could have been three other different people, according to what I've read. But that seems to be the more of the accurate versions of it. Um, Walter Bauer states that Wallace was a tall man with his body of with the body of a giant and long arms and legs with broad hips. And he was, he was meant to be extremely tall. And as he quotes it firm, um, there's been multiple different uh, discussions about his height. Some say he was seven foot tall. Some say he was six foot four. Others five eleven. I just think that's interesting how height is such an important factor in history as well as even now. Yeah, and I guess it's like the size of the legend, yeah. right? So like it just keeps growing and growing, and you know we'll never know. Um, most people probably never even saw him in real life that talk about him. So exactly, you get these sort of legends and distortions of facts that are more fun often than the than the real story. Exactly. And, I mean, one thing that we did tend to find out was he was... Uh, his education was quite good. He was able to speak in multiple uh, languages, probably French and even Latin. And, I mean, being able to read and write back then was an extreme advantage for anyone, uh, let alone someone from Scotland who probably never would have had that opportunity otherwise. Yeah, so, I mean, even just being literate in Scotland here would have set him apart from the majority of the population. He was like the son of a minor noble they yeah. weren't they weren't hugely wealthy but um just being able to get that education being able to learn how to you know fight with a sword that set him apart from like a huge amount of people like we're not saying he was you know grew up with a silver spoon but he yeah. did get a little bit more apparently spoke french and latin and yeah. could read which just made him yeah um you know quite able to to be 
what he became. Yeah, and even being used to, to convince people of his cause as well, which was huge back then. Um, the political situation in Scotland was pretty... Uh, unstable once um, Alexander III died. Um, he was the king of Scotland for a while. And during that time, the country was economically stable. But once he died, there were quite a few claims to the throne, some say up to 14. And obviously, Edward I, who was, in Sco- who was king of uh, England at the time, really wanted the Scottish throne, but instead was actually asked to assist the Scottish in kind of deciding who would, who they wanted to be king, which I think was a pretty big mistake as he really wanted uh, Scotland to be part of uh, England. Yeah, and this is like, we've got the, especially if you're like me and you watched Braveheart a month ago, like, it's completely different to that, like, what there's like the famous barn scene in Braveheart where, like, the dudes come together to decide a new leader. Um, I mean, I think through this time of Alexander III's rule, I was... um, Reading that it was actually a pretty peaceful time between yeah. Scotland and England. Exactly. Yeah. So I think obviously he was quite. He was he was a good king, and he kind of had the respect of even maybe Edward. Not that we know much about how they interacted, but yeah. So unfortunately, when he died, he fell off a horse, and that's when kind of all the chaos started. Once Edward kind of appointed that John uh, Balliol would be king, and he did this essentially because he wanted a puppet to kind of rule Scotland through him. Um, this didn't last. Uh, the, 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 all the other Scotsmen kind of figured out what was going on and they weren't a fan of him. And they ended up appointing a council of 12, which ended up kind, kind of, uh, ruling Scotland in, instead. Um, once this happened, they kind of, uh, made a treaty with France because they were kind of worried about what Edward might do. This in turn angered Edward the first. And that kind of was the the early starting point for the for the Scot for England invading Scotland and what would turn soon turn out to be this the this Scottish War for Independence. Um, so I guess we'll talk about Edward quickly here. Yeah. Um, Longshanks, I think, is like what he gets referred to the most. Edward the First or Edward Longshanks. Um, he's clearly in Braveheart again. You know, it's all fresh in my mind. He's, he's the bad guy. He's yeah. absolutely the bad guy in this situation. Um, I actually found out reasonably recently <laughs> as well that um, through some family tree work done by, you know, my grand and my brother that um, I'm actually somewhat of a descendant of, of Edward Longshanks. I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing, Jimmy, because he's a pretty controversial dude in real life as I mean, well. I mean, yeah, he wasn't... Um, a, he was an amazing leader in terms of what he did with his army and... And he was great at uh, fighting. But in terms of his personality and how he treated others, I wouldn't have said he was a, a startling example of uh, kindness. Yeah. The, um, if, you, if you've watched Braveheart, the Prima Nocta thing, it's, it's debated whether this is real, but it was essentially, um, I guess, forced rape yeah. on newlyweds where, like, the, the nobleman in charge of the area or the king basically had the right to, to deflower um, any any woman on her wedding night, which is obviously a um, extremely crappy and mean rule. Yes, horrible. Um, it would be awful. And um, also, he wasn't great to to the Jews. Um, one of the many tribulations of that those people in Europe, but he basically created a law that expul like an expulsion from England. So you weren't if you were Jewish in England. Previously, you were allowed to live there, thrive, all that sort of stuff. There was a bit of oppression, but he basically told them to leave. Yeah. So not maybe not a great bloke. No. Yeah. Um, 
So now we move on to kind of prior to the Scottish Wars of Independence. Again, there's not a lot of information about uh, what uh, William did, but some say he had some uh, experience in the army and even would have fought under Edward I in some of his campaigns against the Welsh. Um, It was actually said that he might have been an archer because he held the seal of the archer's insignia. And um, this would have been... I think, pretty important in the years to come when he started the fight for Scotland's independence, Clint. Yeah, so I guess, you know, knowing how the English fought as well would have been an advantage and being able to learn in those campaigns. Like, I think, again, in the movie it shows, you know, that he's from... It doesn't show this military background, but he definitely had yeah. a bit of military experience before he became a revolutionary. Exactly. You can kind of see in the movie that he's you can tell he's had experience fighting that he knows all the tactics and i think especially he knew uh the motivations behind the english and he knew how much that they hated the scots and what they thought about them so he he would use that to his advantage um in the end the first act of the uprising was carried out by wallace when he murdered the uh uh, marshal or like a high sheriff called uh william de his 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 um and he basically killed him and that kind of is what started uh the the kind of the english coming in 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 into fight against the scottish against the scottish because obviously they can't just allow one of their sheriffs to be killed and that allows uprising um pretty much uh, there's been some. There, there, there were some skirmishes, and that leads us into the big battle of Stirling Bridge. Um, this was essentially Wallace's crowning achievement, Clint. Yeah, so it's the the very famous scene, and we were chatting before this about like Stirling Bridge. I didn't know there was a bridge because in the movie they fought this battle was in a field, exactly, and the bridge is such an important part of this. But yeah, it happened in. Uh, 1297 and um, yeah like you said it's a massive famous victory akin to kind of you know our second episode where we talked about Henry V establishing his um, reputation through this improbable victory Um, I reckon this is William Wallace's Jimmy so essentially what happened was you had the English who held held the castle at Stirling and essentially they'd taken that the year before and they needed to cross the bridge at Stir- uh, the Stirling Bridge, which was over the, the, the River Forth. Um, the bridge was quite small and thin and pretty much it was the only crossing, the main crossing into Northern Scotland, which is where they needed, which is where they needed to go to attack the uh, Scots. The English commander, John de Warren, Earl of Surrey was determined to cross the bridge and defeat the Scots. He didn't want to wait around. He wanted to take the battle straight to to them. Um, on the other side of the bridge, the Scots were waiting at Abbey Craig, and they kind of had the they 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 could see that the English were advancing as they were up on on the higher ground. Um, before before the, when it was an inevitable that the battle was about to commence, um, there was actually a few Scottish knights on the side of the English, and he maybe suggested that it was you could send some uh, horsemen up to a like a ford, a, a, like a, another a small crossing of the river, and send some horsemen over there to kind of outflank the uh, the. Uh, uh, forces of the Scottish. Now, that seems like pretty sound advice, Glenn, to me from someone who knows the land really well. Yeah, yeah, you trust those guys. We've covered that in a few battles, haven't we? That, yeah. like, 
local knowledge exactly. almost always um, is a massive advantage in any battle. And yeah, to um, this advice was obviously ignored though, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times in history people have ignored the advice of others, but again, this was a huge bit of advice ignored by Hugh uh, de Cressingham, who was uh, another lord. At, at the battle, and this essentially cost the English the uh, battle, which we'll go through later on. And he was one of, and we'll talk about, he was one of the main leaders to lead them across the bridge. Yeah. I think um, also I'd like to just quickly show about, like, hubris and oh, and the overconfidence of, of, of the English. I mean, the English had the heavy cavalry, they had the better armour, they had the better swords and spears and archers, and I think that would have played a big part in why he maybe ignored the advice of someone who knew the local area a lot better. Yeah, they had the numbers advantage, they had the technology advantage, um, they had the heavy armour, the cavalry, uh, like all that sort of stuff that, you know, against these, you know, pretty peasantish sort of Scottish forces yeah. as well. I think the Scottish would have had fairly light armour. Some might have had swords, maybe sharpened knives, but they didn't exactly have the same type of swords and armour that uh, the English did, which was... Uh, and it would have been quite intimidating to see that coming across the bridge as well. I would have been surprised to see a few farm tools and things like oh, that. Oh, for sure, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And, I mean, I think that the amazing thing about William Wallace was that this didn't intimidate him at all. He, he, he was fully confident in his... Um, his knowledge of the area, and that he could defeat the English. So, as I said before, um, this, the, the Scots were pretty much placed near Abbey Craig, and they had taken advantage of the higher ground. And as you know, in any battle, having the higher ground is a huge advantage, and Wallace would use that as well as the landscape to help him to fight the English. As I said before, Hugh uh, de Cressingham would lead the vanguard, which is like the main force of the of the army across the bridge. Um, and because the bridge was so narrow, only two rows of men or horses could go across at the same time. And he was taking across mounted men at arms as well as uh, the heavy horse. And it was around a force of uh, 2000. So he was taking a sizable force over and he was taking like the, 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 the main fighting men, the guys who were the most experienced. This would essentially be the downfall of um, the English and um, because of the narrow bridge a lot of the men got stuck and as William advanced he advanced in a it's called a, sh- a, sh- a Shiltron formation, which I'm probably saying wrong, but essentially essentially, it was like an oval shape of spears pointing out everywhere and this was extremely uh, good tactic against the heavy horse as well as the men-at-arms, Clint. Yeah, and like we said, you know, they're crossing this narrow sort of area, so they were able to, like, yeah, basically defeat this, like, high-speed cavalry charge Yeah, military tactic, which exactly. is yeah, really cool. So, essentially, the horsemen have tried to cross and the men-at-arms, and they've been stopped by this kind of spear wall, essentially. And because, obviously, they're crossing the bridge, it's narrow, It's they, they can't move quickly, the archers are kind of out of range, so that's not really effective against the Scots. And, essentially, um, the Scots uh, force the English to turn back, but they end up they end up being routed because they couldn't move back off the bridge because they were all stuck on there. Yeah, so massive, massive um, victory for the Scots, you know, forcing the English to retreat um, despite being heavily outnumbered. Um, and it essentially, like, led to Scotland being, 
you know, pretty much independent from England um, or, you know, at least inspiring this revolution to be independent from England. Yeah, well, essentially, once this happened, the Earl of Surrey knew that kind of the Scots outnumbered them. He basically retreated and blew up the bridge, essentially, so that the Scots couldn't come after them. And Hugh de Cressingham, the genius who decided not to listen to the uh, the other Scotsmen on his side, died. This kind of led to a flow-on effect throughout the rest of Scotland, like you said, basically made them independent because the main army had left and all these other, uh, all the castles and garrisons in the area kind of surrendered as well. Once this happened, Wallace took advantage of the situation and he led a large scale raid into Northern England, into Northumberland and Cumberland. And basically kind of really, he took the fight to the English and upon his return, he became a knight and the guardian of Scotland, which was a pretty huge honor for back then. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not huge amounts of information historically out there to go off for this, but like it seems like William Wallace really just became went from pretty much a nobody to yeah. to being the leader of this Scottish revolution, essentially in the in the eyes of the Scottish people, maybe yeah, not so much. Yeah, he was kind of. I mean, he wasn't the king, but he was the unofficial. Uh, he was un, he's unofficially like a king of Scotland, essentially, and basically was there to make sure that the English would stay out. Um, unfortunately, though, for uh, him, Edward I had come back from his wars in France, had heard about what was going on, he'd heard about all the raids that were happening, and he he decided that he himself would personally go to Scotland with his, his main force and attack uh, William and and the, and the Scots. Yeah, like despite being a questionable bloke, Longshanks was quite a strong military leader, and I think that's one of the parts that maybe um, Braveheart gets right is like Edward, like Longshanks is pretty pissed off when he hears that William Wallace has defeated exactly. his forces and is kind of inspiring this revolution yeah. in Scotland. And and he knows as a as a military leader he he needs to put, put put this rebellion to bed. And so in 1298 we have the battle of Falkirk. So in 12 in April 1298 Edward ordered a second invasion of Scotland and 2 days prior to the battle he had 25,781 foot soldiers were paid and they would be sent to Scotland uh, as long as well as as long as as well as the Welsh and also the presence of heavy horsemen as well, and he had about 1,500 of those. Um, they pretty much plundered their way through Scotland, took back some castles and some uh, some other important strategic points in Scotland, and pretty much were trying to fight uh, Wallace and the Scots. William Wallace was playing an evasive game, kind of trying to weaken them by uh, trying to get their supplies down and wanting to be as tight as as they could before the battle. Yeah, I guess the deeper you get into Scotland, the more men you lose, the more vulnerable you you become. And I guess Longshanks is probably trying to cut the head off the snake and try to get to get to Wallace and draw him out um, into battle so he can kind of put this, like you said, to bed. Exactly. And, I mean, there were a few issues within Edward's army. There had been some... Obviously, they were getting sick of travelling deeper into Scotland and there had been some issues and Edward had to kill some of his own men so that they would stop basically arguing and trying to leave. Yeah. I think there's, like, there's a distinction as well between, like, this Scottish Rebellion type of army and the this paid army. Yeah. Like, 
one are like heavily passionate about their cause yeah. and inspired by their leader. Exactly. The other are essentially, you know, swords for hire. Exactly right. And but I mean, I think, and I think the interesting was that even though they were paid to fight for Edward, Edward was so powerful in the way that he commanded his troops that it still worked out for him essentially, as we'll find out. So in July, while planning a return to Edinburgh for supplies, Edward received intelligence that the Scots were encamped near Falkirk and he, he basically said, nah, that's it, we're going for it, and he moved quickly to engage them in the pitched battle he had longed hoped for. Um, Wallace, again, had he arranged for the uh, Shiltron formation. However, Edward, being a seasoned uh, uh, fighter and knew all the different tactics, essentially broke this down by using his archers and uh and essentially would send men in to pretty much die so that the archers could take advantage and break this apart. And essentially Wallace was uh, pretty easily beaten. Once, once the battle got pretty much all the way through, Wallace tried to escape, um, and he did, but this basically meant his reputation suffered quite a bit, Clint. Yeah, like where Ster- like Sterling Bridge was this big... Um, victory, I guess, for him. And, you know, there was this hubris and overconfidence from the English and probably not the leadership that Longshanks brings with him. Um, whereas this was... Uh, he Like, Wallace tried the same thing here and was, was outmatched by um, a far, probably, superior army and leader. And I think that also a big difference was Edward didn't care about his soldiers, they were paid. So if he lost most of his army but defeated Wallace, he was fine with that. He didn't really have any uh, qualms about sending his men in in to die, as where Wallace probably had a bit more care for his uh, fellow Scots. By September 1298, though, Wallace had resigned as guardian of Scotland. Obviously, you can't be a guardian of Scotland if you lose a battle. Yep. And Robert the Bruce was named in his place. What a name too, Robert the Bruce. I know. I love that. It's an extremely powerful name, and obviously he would become extremely important in Scottish history, and we'll probably have another podcast about him at some point as well. Yeah, I know. You love Robert the Bruce. I, I feel like we're going to revisit him at some point. For sure. So pretty much, the again, the details of what uh, Wallace was doing was pretty vague at this point. Some say he went to France to kind of ask for assistance and to help out with the with 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 uh, Scotland's fight for independence but that really never eventuated and by 1304 Wallace was back in Scotland and he had some minor skirmishes between him and the English but nothing to the extent of Stirling or Falkirk yeah so this is like 6 years after he resigned so it's kind of a little bit in limbo he wasn't really Leading a revolution anymore? No, he was. Yeah, he was. He was essentially running for his life, and but still trying to be a bit of a thorn in the English side. Eventually, though, Wallace was uh, caught on um, August fifth, thirteen oh five. He'd been essentially been turned over by a Scottish knight, and was and he was taken and he was transported to London where he was tried for treason for atrocities against civilians in war. They crowned him with a garland of oak, suggesting he was the king of the outlaws, and he responded to the charge of treason by saying, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I was never his subject, which I think is, again, for quotes that have a lot of power, that's such a powerful thing to, thing, thing to say. Yeah, that's I love a good baller last quote. Yeah. Or like, you know, that, that big... Um 
you know, and it backs up the whole reason why he was doing it. He was never happy to be a subject of Edward, yeah. and he always thought that Scotland should be ruled by Scots. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And I think also he wanted to really let Edward know that. I never saw myself as English and the people who fought with me never saw themselves as English either, which was such a big, which was such a, the whole point of of the, of the fight for independence. Following a trial, which I'm sure was pretty brief, (laughs) Wallace was taken from the hall to the tower of London, stripped naked and dragged through the city at the heels of horses to the elms of Smithfield. I think a few of our uh, subjects that we've talked about have had some pretty unpleasant last moments at Tower of London so far. Yeah. I think Guy Fawkes, I think Anne Boleyn. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really. I mean, now it's a tourist attraction, but 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 back in the day, it wasn't a place where you wanted to be because it pretty much meant you were going to die. Yeah, and he um, he died a pretty horrible death. I think he did. Yeah. So he was hung, hung, drawn, and quartered, like we'd spoke about before. He was strangled by hanging, but he was released while he was still alive. So essentially, they were trying to suffocate him, but then they uh, let him go at the last minute. Um, he was uh, emasculated. I think you can all kind of understand what that means. And um, his bowels were removed and burned in front of him. They really made a display of this, didn't they? Trying to show not to be a traitor Ex- to the English throne. Exactly. It wasn't even so much about him being in pain, more the fact it was trying to show to other Scotsmen and anyone else who wanted to rebel against England that this is what will happen to you. So, I mean, obviously the king probably enjoyed the torture, but I think it was more to send out a message to everyone else that this is what happens to you. He was eventually beheaded. He was cut into four parts. His preserved head was dipped in tar and was placed atop London Bridge, and his limbs were displayed separately in Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling, and Perth. So, again, like we said before in uh, the Guy Fawkes episode, four quarters sent to the four different parts of uh, England. Yeah, the warning to not betray the crown. Um, and that's historically, like, that's another rare historical accuracy between the movie and um, real life with yeah. Wallace as well. Like, I know. In the movie, there was a big, drawn-out, you know, last days yeah. of him where I think they were trying to get him to basically admit that, you know, he yeah. was a subject of Edward. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole, I think the whole point was that uh, Edward wanted him before he died to say that he basically had his allegiance to him, but uh, William Wallace was a stubborn man and that was never going to happen. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much what happened to, uh, to him. I want to talk about his uh, legacy, though, because 23 years after the first fight for the Scottish independence, they actually got it. So I think um, I think that's really important to know that even though he never saw what he wanted to happen, it did eventually happen. And, I mean, there are always going to be uh, fights and skirmishes later on, but he essentially got what he sought, what he sought out, out to do, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, he got the ball rolling, at least. Like, obviously, he made a pretty horrible demise, but it's it's great to hear that, you know, Scottish um, were able to gain independence. I'm sure he wouldn't have been a big fan of, like, the referendum that happened in Scotland. No. Right, like, a few years ago, where they um, had, the, had the option to completely remove themselves from the UK. I'm sure he would have been very pro-exit. Exactly. Um, and I think it's also amazing. Uh, there are a, a lot of statues built in his honour um, with his famous uh, long sword that he had. And I think um, even today in Scotland, he's a very important part of their history. And, and I think a, a lot of people would talk about him very proudly and fondly. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So legacy is, yeah, he got the ball rolling. He 
is absolutely honoured around Scotland. And I think he, he does have quite a legendary status around there, despite, you know, not huge amounts being yeah. known about him as a man, but obviously inspired a, a terrific film, inspired Mel Gibson, despite... Um, yeah, and I'd like to briefly talk about the sort of the Braveheart versus the facts, because I think that's important for people who do want to watch the film that they know that the movie is not very accurate at all. Um, but it is a great uh, tribute to the man, I think. And I think that's the most important thing uh, uh, that, that, that the film does. It really shows uh, the character of what he would have been like. Yeah, and it's, um, and it's a bloody good film. And they... Like, me with my history mind, as soon as I watch, like, something that's, like, somewhat inspired by history, I, like, I'll, I'll get the phone out and start yeah. Googling as soon as it's done. Like, was that real? Like, was that happened? And there's a lot of inaccuracies, yeah. but it was fun. Like, uh, a few examples were, uh, obviously, uh, the uh, Scots didn't have the kilts in 1297. They, they weren't even near being uh, made. I think someone likened it to uh, people in uh, the uh, American War for Independence as them wearing uh, uh, three-piece suits. So extremely uh, different. But again, I think Mel Gibson's idea was to kind of have the essence of Scotland showing through in the movie and then to really also bring forth uh, the character of uh, William Wallace as well. Yeah, for sure. And I even, like, you know, we, we, we say all this, but apparently a lot of stuff, and I heard this in a podcast um earlier was basically a poet wrote about william wallace more than a hundred years after his death and a lot of our accounts and what we know about him comes yeah. from this and apparently you know this is a, like a blind poet that was read a book about him that was apparently a biography that there's no trace of existing so a lot of a lot of what we know is probably legend but it is um it's a good legend, I think. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think it's important to to learn about, and I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I've been Jimmy D. And I'm Mr. B. Uh, stay curious. And stay cheeky. Stay cheeky.